0: This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by 2-6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 2-6 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions to evaluate the overall understanding, strategic direction, and tactical implementation of your campaigns. You can learn more at 26digital.com, and that's all letters, no numbers. And now on to our show. After 10 years with Visit Austin, Julie Hart founded CFO by Design in 2012 with the vision of developing organizational excellence by using finances as the foundation. Since then, Julie has had the privilege of working with DMOs and associations across the nation. Julie's experience does not follow the traditional accounting path. It includes serving two terms on the city council in Bastrop, Texas, Julie is also known for her expertise in developing easy-to-understand financial statements, training of executives and their boards, and taking a long-term holistic strategic approach to organizational finances. Julie Hart, welcome to DMOU.
1: Thank you so much, Bill. I am very honored to be here. I've listened to your podcast for years and I'm thrilled to be participating.
0: Well, we're just as thrilled to have you uh, on board today. And, And before we begin, I just have to say, Thank you for all that you have done in the transition from DMAI to Destinations International. Those of us that have been close to the organization over the past four years certainly know of your dedication, but the rest of our audience may not know of the tireless expertise you brought to the transition team. And as the saying goes, couldn't have done it without you. So on behalf of all of us in the industry, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you. It has been an honor to be involved with them and to watch the transformation of that organization under Um, Don's wonderful leadership and the team that he has there, so I've just been thrilled to be involved.
0: Yeah. Well, those of us on the calls and the webinars from Destination International over the past couple of weeks um, have heard your name called a lot as DMOs attempt to make sense of a terrifying erosion of future revenue streams with which to keep their doors open. How has your message changed from those first days of COVID-19 over the past four or five weeks And what are you advising your DMO clients to be doing now?
1: Oh, wow. That's a great question because I feel like every day um, in this new environment, something is changing. And for a long time, and, you know, I say a long time, this has happened very quickly, What felt like a long time. It was like, okay, where's bottom going to be? What is this going to look like? Are we headed for another 9-11? And now at this point, we all know, sadly, that we wish, that the economic impacts of this were going to be like 9-11 instead of what we're seeing now. So there have been a few things um, that haven't changed that I am still advising our clients to do. Probably the biggest piece of that is really please focus on cash. Cash is king. I've seen a huge push for people to reevaluate budgets, to look at, you know, what can we change? What can we cut? How do we do this? And that's important. That's a really important piece of what you need to do. But the single most important piece of what you need to do is know how long your cash can carry you. So I'm really encouraging people to focus on that cash piece. Still encouraging people, really be careful with your discretionary spending, you know, because as we've seen now, the bottom is zero, which we didn't expect. But now the question is, how long is that going to last? And that's the piece that I think is really kind of weighing on everybody's mind and over their head right now is when are we going to start to see an uptick? What really has changed is when the first round of uh, the CARES Act came out, I was pretty enthusiastic about what that might be able to do for the small business community and specifically our DMOs. After really digging into that legislation, um, Bill, as you well know, the C6s, which are most of our DMOs, and then also our DMOs who are parts of city and county government, really are not eligible for much, if any, relief under those programs. So I'm encouraging people now, Absolutely keep pursuing those, put applications in, try to get lined up in the queue, especially since some new funding has been released, but we cannot rely on those. That's not going to be, it's just looking more obvious that C6s are not going to be included in a meaningful way. I'm not hopeless about that. Um, I know that our friends at U.S. Travel have been working um, you know, on the advocacy side to have our C6s included, so I don't want to totally give up hope, but we absolutely can't rely on that. The other thing that's really changed in probably the last couple of weeks, and as much as I hate to say this because it's not something any of us ever want to participate in or be involved in, I'm really starting to think that we have to look at furloughs as a strategy. And there's a couple of reasons um, that I think we need to really look at that. First, one of the things that did come through the CARES Act is enhanced unemployment benefits. And so that means in most parts of the country, because most states and their unemployment operates a little bit differently. But in most parts of the country, if you have an employee who makes 50000 or less, they will be whole or actually make more being furloughed and on unemployment than they will be being employed. And so you can furlough that person and still leave them in a very strong financial situation. You can still pay their medical benefits, but then really preserve as much cash um, as you can for the organization because that's going to be so critical for our recovery. Because again, we don't know at this point, when are we going to start seeing an uptick again? The other thing I'm really encouraging people to do is know what your decision points are. Um, Because we don't know when the end of this is going to happen. You know, it feels like the shelter in place. We keep thinking it's going to be over and then it gets extended another week, another two weeks, another month. Know where your decision points are. If it becomes obvious in your area that you're not going to have any travel activity through June or July, what does that mean? And then what do you need to do? side because of that. And, you know, and finally, the other thing I'm really encouraging my clients to think about, and I'm doing a lot of thinking about this, um, and Bill, I know you probably have done a lot of work in this world too, is we've talked for a long time now, you know, the last several years, a lot of talk in the DMO world has been about how we're not just about heads and beds. We do so much more. You know, that's why we are now destination management organizations or destination marketing organizations, you know, whatever acronym you want to use. But, While we're saying that's not our primary focus, that is our primary funding stream. So as long as we continue to be tethered to hotel revenue, either through taxes or t you know, that are assessments, we're going to have to really think about how do we diversify that revenue because we're providing services across the entire community, but leaning on one industry to fund us. Um, And we're really starting to see the challenges of that at this point.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. The whole diversification of of revenue streams has always been one of the things that I've been you know, trying to convey to boards that I work with across the country. And it's always the fascinating ones, the boards that have a banker or somebody in finance who's on the board, and they're just shaking their heads going, geez, how do you operate an enterprise when 90% of your revenue is coming from one source? And now we've realized that that source is undependable. And we really do need to, I think, reactivate that conversation that if it's important to the community, and what we do is, then why are we res- restricted to only room tax? Well, why isn't there a, a general fund component to the funding? Because we are a shared community value. Why isn't there you know, more utilization of restaurant taxes or others? Tulsa got it right a number of years ago when they essentially went to the business community and said, what can we do for you? And, and corporate Tulsa said, we need an image upgrade. And we, as employers who can't find qualified workforce to come to move to Tulsa are willing to pony up. And they do collectively to the tune of about $2 million a year. And some people say, well, yeah, that's Tulsa. We'll say, well, how about $200,000 a year? <laughs> I mean, if the corporate community realizes the value that we bring to making our destinations attractive for workforce development, to get the best and the brightest, to consider our community as a place to live, we all need to have that conversation when we come out the other side, or actually we probably need to be having the conversation right now. Exactly. Yeah. The whole furlough and uh, and layoff thing, I have been fascinated at how many DMOs have moved to furlough and layoffs so quickly. Are you surprised at that?
1: Yes and no. There are two scenarios that I think are driving that. The first is that it's what do we have in cash reserves and oh my goodness, we're going to run out of money in 30 days. And sadly, there's a large portion of our DMO community that just does not have cash reserves. I think the second piece of that, and this kind of goes back to us being so tied to the hotel industry, is that if you have a board that is made up predominantly of hoteliers, they're looking saying, okay, I just laid off 90% of my staff. You need to do the same. And so then you start having that pressure of, I had to do it, you should do it too, we should all feel this pain, even if you still have solid reserves. And I've seen a couple of situations like that, you know, and then there is, of course, just the very pragmatic, if people don't have work to do, then we should lay them off, you know. And so there, are, I think there are a lot of factors that go into it. Obviously, how much money you have, but I also think, you know, what is the, will of your board and how are they pushing that? Because the other side of that is some boards are really pushing against laying off. And I'm like, okay guys, we've got to have this conversation because you're going to run out of money and we need some resources to come out of recovery. You know, so there's a lot of kind of individual community values and how they look at that um, that I think play into that. But I do think at this point, everybody should at the minimum be having that conversation because if you're not, you have resources walking out the door, Um, in terms of dollars that are going to be very desperately needed. And it could be a long time before they start walking back in.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, coastal communities in general, I think, are well more positioned to weather this, quote unquote, storm, uh, no pun intended, because they deal with hurricanes. And and they have learned over the years that you must have a robust reserve account, because there's going to come a time that there will be no room tax coming to you. And most coastal communities have gone through that over the past two decades. And so they've learned that lesson. And, you know, coastal DMOs may very well be the model for the rest of us going forward of how you make that case to the board, how you make that case to government. The day before travel stopped, I was talking to a county board member who was just flummoxed by the fact that the Bureau was sitting on a couple hundred thousand dollars in reserve. And I said to him, I said, you know, there's this thing called COVID-19 that we really don't know what's going to happen. And like the next day travel stopped. But I said, you may actually have a different tune next week or next month because overnight, those reserve accounts have become absolutely vital.
1: I mean, in my position on reserves has changed through this crisis because one of the things that we have seen you know, in our DMO community is that if your reserves are too high, you've become a target, yeah. either for the government or another nonprofit or event support, any number of things. So I had kind of changed my tune that we don't want to keep too much in reserves, you know, kind of had to go against my finance and accounting background um, to say, you know, let's be a little more not as conservative with our reserve funds. But the thing that we're seeing that I think is really important is having well-defined reserve funds and people need to understand why you have them and what they're for. And so that part hasn't changed. But I do think absolutely going forward, this is going to change the way we do financial planning uh, for all of our DMOs. Because, you know, to your point, I've always said your reserve fund should be built um, based on your specific risk factors. You know, and I would use coastal communities as an example is they know that a hurricane's gonna come and so they hold more in reserves than the rest of us and that's prudent for them. We may not need as much in reserves as someone who doesn't have that risk of natural disaster. But now we all have to deal with what happens if there's another global pandemic and we go to zero. So it really has changed my perspective on that from Mm -hmm. if there's another 9-11, are we prepared? To, okay, is there another pandemic? How are we going to be prepared?
0: So the follow-up question is obvious, I think. For every DMO pro that ever said or dreamed that they could build a DMO from scratch, that wish has been granted. How would you advise your clients on this opportunity to reimagine and restructure tomorrow's DMO?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And the thing I always encourage my clients to do, and even more now, is scenario planning. You know, it sounds pretty obvious, except normally we know that there could be one or two scenarios that are going to be, you know, okay, if X happens, if city council cuts our budget by 20%, what do we do? If they keep it whole, what do we do? That's not the scenarios we're looking at. We have a completely clean slate to think about how is our industry going to be fundamentally changed in the future? And as a DMO, what is our role going to be in that? And so I think we have to completely reimagine even the structure of our organizations. And one of the things that probably seems obvious is sales and services going forward is going to have to have some kind of risk assessment piece to it. So the skills that we have in our really strong salespeople may need to be augmented so that they learn more about how do we gauge the risk of this group coming to town and help mitigate that impact on our community or help this group really navigate what the new requirements are going to be to hold an event because they're probably going to change community by community. So we're going to have to have some type of skill set to really help people understand and mitigate and navigate around that. You know, I do think it's if events get limited to 50 people or less for the next 12 months, which I shudder to think that that's going to happen, but it very well might. What does that mean for our DMO? How does that change our structure? Many, many people, Bill, as you well know, are really starting to focus on that drive market. You and I had a conversation. I thought it was interesting. You said people feel very safe in their cars right now. Mm -hmm. And so how does that really change? We've been so focused on looking out and drawing people from a far distance into our community because the farther they have to travel, the longer they're going to stay and the more money they're going to spend to, okay, this is not going to be international travel because I believe that's going to be a long time really coming back probably because of regulations and also just individual traveler comfort level and then communities willingness to really um, be accepting of people that they don't feel might have the same health screening or have been under the same uh, requirements that we've been under. So I think all of those things are really going to change but it is I do believe going to fundamentally change the structure of our DMOs. I think our we're going to have new departments. I think we're going to need new skill sets. We talked earlier about, you know, those new revenue streams. I don't think it can just be about hotels anymore because they are a stakeholder. They're not the only stakeholder. And I think if we see DMOs who really are starting to focus and say, "And eh, we're just going to get back to business as usual, they're going to be really far behind the curve um, because I don't think we're ever going to go back to business as usual, sadly.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I had a um, DMO individual reach out through LinkedIn last night and said, uh, any guidance on how we should look towards restructuring. And I thought about it for a while and I said, you know, this kind of gets back to Simon Sinek and start with why. Because I think we all have to start with why do we exist and it's to market our destination. Okay, so let's start from scratch. What's the most important thing that we cannot walk away from? And that's going to be a hard discussion. Uh, We were working with one community recently that they are absolutely 50-50 convention versus leisure. (laughs) Okay, pick one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's an impossible Perfect. choice, right? But you have to pick one. You pick one and say we're going to do this. Okay, do we have any more cash to do one more, two more, and keep going until you run out of cash? But there's going to be stuff that we're just not going to do anymore. At least not in the in the near term. And as we restructure and come back from furloughs and come back yeah. from layoffs, I think that that's going to be the hardest discussion that we all have: is pick one. And it's an impossible choice.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really tough choice. I think the market may dictate which one we pick, depending on the appetite of individual communities to get back to the event business. I do think a silver lining of this is hopefully our communities now are incredibly aware of the importance of the visitor economy and what our efforts do to supplement the economy in our areas. So I do hope that that will be a long-lasting Um, change that maybe will be slightly more appreciated um, by our elected officials and community than we have been in the past, that I do think what we do is going to look very, very different.
0: So COVID aside, one of the things that you and I have talked about over the years is what you call activity-based budgeting. And we both uh, agree that it's an accounting style that produces better intel for management in the decision-making process. A lot of nonprofits, as you know, will pile all of their salaries, their taxes, and their benefits into the admin line. That's very typical, and in some cases, expected. But a DMO sales staff is not admin, it's sales. The marketing director is not admin, it's marketing. And these personnel costs should be assigned to those sales and marketing lines to provide a more accurate picture of the enterprise. And for the CEO, their salary is typically spread among all the departments, or should be. Makes sense, right? So recently we've seen some city council members complain that they can't get a handle on the management team's salaries when they're using activity-based budgeting because like I just said, the CEO salary is spread among all the departments because they are involved in all the departments. But this is a bigger part of transparency about which you are particularly passionate. So how will this dark moment on our history change the accountability of DMOs and how do we respond?
1: There has been, as we all know, increasing scrutiny around the accountability and stewardship of the financial resources that are entrusted to DMO. It was kind of interesting because part of what was really driving that scrutiny was the success of our industry. Um, So as we did better and our budgets grew, elected officials, um, others in the community really wanted more information and insight about what we were doing because suddenly that was a big pot of money that it felt like. In many elected officials' minds, they felt that maybe they could use that a little more effectively, you know, and so as we look at um, kind of the transparency piece of that, and I am very passionate about it, because at the end of the day, we are stewards of funds for our community. Um, you know, Jack Johnson says it very well, you know, that we use other people's money to sell other people's assets, um, and we do. And so we people need to understand exactly how we're doing that. I believe if a city council member wants to know salaries, we may not want it on the front page of the paper, and hopefully we can keep it off the front page of the paper, but we need to comply with that request. As a former city council member, the thing that always made me the most uneasy is when I asked what felt like should be a very straightforward question, and I got what felt like a very convoluted answer, because then my assumption was, okay, what are we hiding? What's going on here that you don't want understand Mm -hmm. so and i think i do believe uh most city council members are fairly reasonable there clearly are some that aren't we've all experienced that but if it's like hey we want to share this with you because we want to be completely transparent but of course you know for personal privacy we would prefer this not be put into the public realm i do believe that most city council members will be respectful of that not all but i think that's a risk we have to take as stewards but i also think whenever we're looking at our budget And I really have seen this kind of across the board. We can either have so little information in our budget that it's a one pager with six lines that says, here's our revenue, here's sales, advertising, marketing, services, admin, and that's all we're giving people. That leaves a lot to the imagination. The other side I've seen is, okay, I'm going to give you, and I literally have seen this, a 300 page budget document. And that is crazy. No one's going Mm. to understand it. They don't want to dig through it. And quite honestly, even if you have a 300-page budget document, nobody should care how much you're spending on pens and Post-it notes. You know, like that's just insane. But I'm a big believer in you have to show, and, you know, in accounting we call it natural accounts of how you're spending your money. So is it personnel, which is always a big one, benefits, our overhead, our rent, utilities, those types of things. For our DMO world, I encourage programs kind of living in those natural accounts. So it may be trade shows, sales, missions, client development, media fans, those types of things. I don't necessarily believe in showing travel separately because travel is part of putting on those programs. So I like to include travel in those program expenses as we present our budget. But I think you have to show that level of detail and then really show it by department. So, you know, for our activity-based budgeting, it's like, well, yes, our sales budget is, and I'm going to use big round numbers, a million dollars. 30% of that is on personnel, which you can see clearly. 70% is on the different programs that we do. And then people start getting a more comfortable feel for how you budget, how that works. I don't necessarily believe that we need to put individual salaries in our budget document. Again, share that privately. And the other thing I'm really an advocate of, show information in a couple of different ways. So for instance, we may show this is how much we're spending by department, you know, which would kind of be by activity. So sales, marketing, all those things. And then here's kind of the more natural account. So 35% of our entire budget, um, which is a little low, but 35% of our entire budget goes to personnel. 10% is to rent, and then the rest is programming, you know, around sales activities with another 30% going to advertising. I think when you show it in different ways, people get their minds around it, and the goal is always for me to try to answer the questions before they're asked, and so I always kind of look at it as if I didn't know much about this organization, what questions would I have, and then I try to provide that data in a way that would answer that question, so the end user actually understands it, you know, and that's where I think, Providing someone 300 pages, you don't want them to understand. You just want to say you're transparent because you gave them 300 pages. If people can't really understand the information, we're not as transparent as we should be. And that's what I'm really passionate about is make sure they understand it and be clear. You know, provide clarity. If someone asks a question, answer it. Um, Because the more you try to kind of talk around it, um, they already don't understand what we do. That doesn't build trust. You know, if we can't just be clear and direct, we don't build trust and confidence with our stakeholders, which for me is the goal in the budget and financial reporting process. And, you know, the other thing I'm a big fan of, if you can do it, we all really start going to city council quite often. It's once a year in budget time and we don't ever show up any other time unless we think someone's coming after our funding. Well, stay in contact with your city council members, but always understand what their goals are and what they're trying to accomplish because what we do will answer so many questions for them. And if we know what their question is and what their goal is, then we also can kind of tailor that budget presentation to uh, Council Member X. I know that you've been concerned about job creation or small businesses. Here's what we're doing in terms of really highlighting small businesses that we can use what they already want to see. And most of the time we're already doing it. But then we know how to present it in a way that's more compelling to them.
0: Great point. Okay, time for our bonus round. We have had some pretty creative and at times funny stories about the path that has led many of our guests to the destination marketing world. I understand that you have one too.
1: I think it was a fairly interesting and maybe um, not completely atypical. So um, I, you know, when I was a Going up my career path, I was at a job where I knew the guy who was the controller and CFO. He wasn't going anywhere, and I was like, you know, talk to him. Okay, I'm going to go look for a job. He's like, all right, I totally support it. So I did the old school, um, actually found an ad, and I did not have any idea what a convention and visitors bureau was. I looked at it, and I was, honestly, I thought, well, this looks like the convention center. And so I was like, well, that might be interesting to work at the convention center, kind of see what they do and what happens there. Um, So I applied, I sent my resume in, um, had what I thought was a lovely cover letter, and evidently it worked um, because I got an interview. So during the interview process, I still thought I was interviewing at the convention center. I had no idea I was interviewing at the commission and (laughs) visitors bureau, much less what they did. (laughs) Um, But they gave me directions about where to go. We're going to be off Third Street. You can park um, in our parking garage. You're going to want to park on the third floor and then take the stairs down to the second floor to our building. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm a planner. So, of course, I went and scoped out where I was supposed to be for the building and the parking and before the interview. Got there, luckily for me, plenty early for the interview. Um, and this was July in Austin, Texas, which is generally about 110 degrees. So, really, really hot. Right. Yep. And, of course, I'm in a suit and I'm in heels. And I go in... Uh, to the building. And I'm like, okay, this is the third floor. They told me to go down to the second floor. So I'm kind of looking and I see a stairwell and I'm like, you know, that has the door. And so I go toward the stairwell, open the door and I start to go down. And as I'm walking through a little sign catches my eye that says door locks behind you. And I was like, Oh, that's unfortunate. And the door closed before I like actually processed what that said. (laughs) So I'm in the emergency exit stairwell (laughs) and which no air conditioning 110 degrees. And I'm like, okay, well, let me just go to the second floor and see if maybe that door's unlocked. So I go to the second floor, that door's locked. I'm like, oh no. So I'm like, okay, let me go to the first floor. There's got to be a way to get out of here. I go down to the first floor, still 110 degrees in heels in a suit, go to the first floor. And it's like emergency exit only alarm will sound if you open this door. And I'm like, Hmm. setting off an alarm in a 30-story building in downtown Austin probably is not going to make the right impression. Yeah. So luckily there's a sign that says there's a call box on the fifth floor. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so I start traipsing back up to the fifth floor, <laughs> finally get there. And luckily I was very early for my interview, <laughs> you know, because I'm starting not only am I hot and sweaty because it's 110 degrees and emergency um, exit stairwell. You know, I'm starting to get anxious. I'm going to be late for the interview. So I find the call box and there was a sweetest security uh, woman on the other end of the phone. And I was like, I'm really embarrassed, but I've locked myself in the stairwell. And she's like, oh, honey, it happens several times a day. And I'm like, I don't believe that's true, but thank you for saying it because it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> so she finally came up and let me out. And I said, can you please tell me where the Austin Invention and Visitors Bureau is? And she's like, oh, yes, it's on the second floor. So I finally make it down to the second floor Um, as I'm sitting in the lobby, you know, I'm just burning up. It's so hot. I'm in my suit, but I don't dare take my jacket off because how unprofessional would that be? So the receptionist had left, you know, and so there's a magazine sitting there. So I'm just fanning myself ferociously. And then as soon as someone will walk by, I like put the magazine down and try to be all cool, you know, and flip through. (laughs) And then as soon as there was no one in sight, I'm fanning again. (laughs) And somehow throughout that entire process, I guess that I had a pretty decent interview because they called me back for a second one without getting lost in the stairwell, locking myself in the stairwell, not really understanding where I was interviewing. But somehow, I don't know if that just meant the candidate pool was really thin or what happened, (laughs) but somehow I had a a second interview that went much more smoothly and I had much less anxiety. So that was my entrance um, into the DMO world.
0: (laughs) That is so funny. What a great story. they, They brought you back just to make sure that you didn't have a perspiration problem, right?
1: I think, yeah, probably so. That's probably exactly right. It was funny. When
0: I interviewed for Madison, I really was doing it to position my existing board to give me a raise. It was my hometown DMO. I had no interest in leaving, right? And so I was so just absolutely nonchalant through the interview. It's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And I was just tossing off answers and stuff. And they called me back for a second interview. And I asked one of the search committee members after I'd gotten the job, I said, I was terrible the first interview. I said, why did you ask me back? And they said, we wanted to see what was wrong with you. <laughs> she, she said, we had 400 applications for this job and you didn't care. <laughs> so <laughs> and so The interview stories are always the best. Hey, Julie, thank you so much for all you do for all of us uh, and for the the guidance that you're providing through DI and other outlets, including here at DMOU. Your words, we need to heed and thank you so much for all you do.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And it really is an honor to be featured here. So thank you very, very much. Thank you.
0: So that's it for this edition of DMOU. And thanks too to our sponsor at 26 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to DMOs around the world. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies. You can find them at 26digital.com. DMOPros.com is where you will find more about our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our knowledge bank, videos, blogs. And the biggest dmo job board on the planet as well as links to earlier episodes of dmou that's dmopros with a z dot com executive producer of dmou is terry white and this is a production of dmopros i'm your host bill geist until next time